Welcome to the culture where we talk about the things that really matter. And at last I'm there after the uh, crisis in Gaza getting in our way and ahead of heading to New York in about a week when our schedule as a community will be messed up again as I go to play a war game and see clients in New York ahead of Christmas, which is sort of an annual trip. Um, I thought I'd begin with actually a normal week and get ahead of ourselves. And instead of Monday, on today, on the weekend, talk about our new series, Why Ernest Hemingway Matters, a man who I think is the greatest writer in English in the 20th century. Uh, like many of my views, a deeply unfashionable one, but I'm about to make the case to you. And I was so encouraged by so many of you liking Raymond Chandler as I adore him that I thought I'd move on to my favorite Hemingway and then we'd go on from there. And you have to begin, I think, with Fiesta, the novel he wrote for Scribner's and published in 1926. It's his first novel, and I think critically now uh, there's a consensus that it's undoubtedly his best novel. Uh, he'd written some short stories that had gathered attention, but and he had been a, a cub reporter before for various newspapers. He had settled in Paris famously as part of the expat community there, but uh, this was really his tremendous breakthrough. And I would go so far as to say Fiesta, also known as The Sun Also Rises. That was the publication title in the United States. Fiesta was the publication title in the UK because I first got interested in Hemingway when I was at St. Andrews University. I thought we'd keep with the British titles. Uh, Fiesta, I think, is every bit as good as The Great Gatsby, the kind of totemic novel of the jazz age. And Gatsby, certainly, in novella form, is as good as American novels got in the 20th century. And I think Fiesta matches it blow for blow. And because it's longer and allows for a certain degree of depth because of that, might even be better. But it's undoubtedly the great novel Hemingway wrote. And as famous as Hemingway is, I think he gets the credit he deserves. Uh, again, to contrast him with his frenemy F. Scott Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald wrote Gatsby, which is almost a perfect game in baseball terms, almost the perfect novella, a series of up-and-down other novels, um, and then ended with Tender as the Night. The first two-thirds of Tender as the Night are, again, almost perfect in Gatsby-like form, but then as alcoholism got the better of it, he was unable to write and wrote really the last third to get paid, and it reads that way. So a tragically flawed masterpiece in um, Tender is the Night, a masterpiece in Gatsby, and short stories that are, that are all right, workmanlike, but not really up to scratch. And that's the oeuvre of F. Scott Fitzgerald, really reliant on you reading Gatsby and not anything else. And I think Hemingway uh, does better. The, the, the problem for Hemingway in his contest, his not-too-subtle contest with Fitzgerald, is that Fiesta, every bit as good as Gatsby, Gatsby gets, gets the ring in a scene by critics as better, though I don't think it is. And so it overshadows um, everything else Hemingway did. He continued writing interesting work after having a huge career dip in his midlife crisis where he became a caricature of himself. Um, he responded brilliantly late in life with novels such as For Whom the Bell Tolls, The Old Man and the Sea, uh, which we're certainly both going to look at. And I think that the other thing is that Hemingway, and we will look at Snows of Kilimanjaro, but beyond even Snows, that, that, that Hemingway's short stories deserve to be considered a great novel in their own right. They are brilliant. They are telling. No one was better at writing short stories 
in the 20th century, with the possible exception of Chekhov. And that counts as another great novel. So whereas you can say Fitzgerald had as a novella Gatsby and Two-Thirds of Tender as the Night, and that's it, Hemingway has, just off the top of our heads, Fiesta, um, which certainly is a great, great novel, um, which counts. You have that. You have the short stories. You have Old Man in the Sea. You have For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, and and again, I think we'll also look at some of the other early work that, that, that does stand out. Uh, so I think he's a far greater writer, even though Fitzgerald gets the prize as the doomed purveyor of the 1920s. I think if you look um, the, the writing overall, you certainly come to the conclusion that Hemingway is better. And I'm going to make the case that, in fact, he's the best writer with that, that list, really, that there is out there um, in the 20th century for Americans, certainly. One of the great, and I think the great secret to why Fiesta is so great thematically, before we get into the prose, which is untouchable, Hemingway invented almost a new way of talking, a new way of using the English language with the help of Ezra Pound and others. But before we get to that, you have the thematic key to Fiesta and why it's maybe the greatest anti-war novel ever written, every bit as good as Eric Maria Marag remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front. And I think the reason it's so great is that the key fact of Fiesta is World War I. All the characters are marked and scarred and tarred by World War I, and yet it's not even mentioned. It's barely mentioned in passing in the entirety of the novel. So powerful and so controlled is the work that Hemingway is able to do that he barely mentions the key event that, that maims all the characters in Fiesta, but the war is ever-present because the effects of the war, long after it's over, are what Fiesta is about. The war doesn't need to be mentioned. It's so obviously the cause of everybody's misery. Uh, Hemingway's friend at the time, Gertrude Stein, caused the phrase, the lost generation. But in, Fie in Fiesta, Hemingway makes it his own. The generation that had survived the absolute barbarism of the beginning of the modern era, World War I, and had to pay the price for it the rest of their lives. When we didn't have terms like PTSD, when we didn't talk about the psychological effect of things, and yet Fiesta is all about the psychological effect of a war that's barely mentioned. So powerful is his writing that it's made clear to the reader without him having to explain it to us. That's magic. That's magical writing. As somebody who values his writing me uh, and thinks that most of the people in my profession can't write to save their lives, I'm proud of the writing that I've been able to do. And often before I write, for instance, the, my book, The Last Best Hope, I'll try to read good writing. And so you read things like Steinbeck, Chekhov, Tolstoy, and always Hemingway. Muscular, athletic prose that moves, ing endings on verbs, action verbs that move, that move a story along. And that's true whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. And so um, this is my chance to have an homage to Hemingway and hopefully get our community interested. For our book club, please do read Fiesta, the Scribner version out since 1926. It's been in print constantly since then, so feel free to read it where you want. But again, the magic trick here is that the, it's a, the greatest anti-war book perhaps ever written, and the war is almost not mentioned. It's the effects of the war that determine almost everything. On the surface, it's a story about British and American expatriates traveling from Paris to Pamplona 
for the running of the bulls, the festival of San Fermin, the running of the bulls and the bullfights there. That's that's what happens in quotes, again, beneath this anti-war story that's told beneath it. At the time, uh, Hemingway then is now divided people. There were a lot of amazing reviews of his work and a lot of people who thought it was filthy garbage, including his mother um, at the time. But there were mixed reviews at the time, but now it's seen as his most important novel and really the clarion call of the World War I generation, the lost generation that Gertrude Stein talked about. Um, really what happens is that it, it's character-driven, and what was really scandalous at the time was Hemingway was writing about people that he himself knew, uh, that he himself was dealing with. Um, and people in, in Paris at the time and expats would buy a copy of the book to see who was who and what was what. Hemingway himself, with his first wife, Hadley, went to Spain three times in, between 1923 and 1925, and the book is published in 1926. They went also to see the running of the bulls, uh, the festival of San Fermin, and to go fishing in the Pyrenees, which is one of the most transcendental pieces of writing ever put to pen, pen down to paper, uh, Hemingway's account. Uh, in Fiesta of Jake and his friend's trip uh, to the Pyrenees to go fishing. Again, nature is seen as this balm for things. But you can't mention Fiesta without beginning to talk about the revolution of Hemingway's prose. And there are many people who are given credit for it. I think really, as ever, writers take the influences around them. Certainly I do things that Sarah says or John says or things that you guys write in about, or things that anger me, amuse me, or that I'm passionate about. That's how you write. And so these influences are important, but in the end, it's Hemingway who came up with this new way of writing. But we would be remiss if not giving Gertrude Stein credit for saying, write leaner, write more muscular, write in a specifically American way. Ezra Pound, who was kind of the finder of talent in Paris at the time, the great poet, telling him to write as he had learned to write as a newspaper reporter in a spare writing style uh, with as few adjectives as possible and no baggage. Very little context is involved, and you merely describe facts. But knowing the characters, the fantasy of, of Hemingway, the magic trick of Hemingway, is knowing the characters and having him spend time delineating them and knowing spare facts, you put together the rest. You see how these facts would affect these very specific people without the writer banging you over the head and telling you. You show, as so much of Hemingway has been filmic, and you show, you don't tell. And that's a key fact, uh, allowing readers, intelligent readers to come to their own conclusion. This lean, hard, athletic, very American, action-verb-oriented prose um, coinciding with America taking an ever greater role in the world. There's a political element to this, that Hemingway had a terrible time with women, was much better at political risk analysis. He saw World War I as a tragedy, an avoidable tragedy. You see that in, in, in almost all of his work, uh, this, you know, from, from Fiesta onward. Um, at the same time, Farewell to Arms, certainly, which we're going to look at, you see it, in, in another great anti-war book, more specifically about World War I. But in Fiesta and, and in, in Farewell to Arms, you see the tragedy of World War um, I in For Whom the Bell Tolls. You see the importance of the Spanish Civil War, and he went on to become a great, again, 
reporter yet again and wrote about World War II. So he had good, he, he saw World War I as a calamity, the Spanish Civil War is pivotal, and World War II is the last really good moral war. And in each case, I think history would vindicate him. He was much better at picking the times he lived in than dealing with the women that were around him. And again, one, one of the characters, uh, Lady Twisden, uh, was a British socialite who accompanied Hemingway on his 1925 trip to Pamplona, and he fell in love with her. And she's really Lady Twisden as the model for Lady Bread Ashley, who's the heroine of Fiesta. Um, famously, Hemingway got in a fight with her lover on their trip in 1925, very Hemingway thing to do. But Lady Twisden was definitely Lady Brett um, in the novel, so we know who that is. Uh, when Hemingway was writing this, this was a very tumultuous time for him. Not only had he fallen in love with Duff Twisden, later on he fell in love with his second wife, Pauline, and began to carry on an affair with her, even as he had tremendous guilt and remorse at leaving his first wife, Hadley. And in fact, he would leave all the proceeds from Fiesta to Hadley and to his son, Jack, as he went off with his second wife, Pauline. So this was written in a period of absolute chaos for Hemingway, as he tried to sort out his own life, as well as sort out his characters. By 1928, though, despite the mixed reviews, the novel was already in its eighth printing. Um, and by 1983, it had been in print continuously since 1926. So it has been hugely popular. Again, somewhat in the shadow of Gatsby, though it shouldn't be, but hugely popular in its own right. The surface story is easy enough to explain. Jake Barnes, who is a Hemingway stand-in character, is a war veteran who has been maimed. It's not ever made specific as to what happened to him, but has received a severe war, a war wound, which makes him unable to have sex. Um, and it's the love affair between Jake and the promiscuous Lady Bread Ashley. Jake is an expat in, in, in Paris, but unlike all the other posers sitting around, he actually works for a living um, in a newspaper. And so he's busy while the, all the, the others are feeling sorry for themselves and posing. Brett has been twice divorced um, and is really reveling in the new sexual freedom for women in Europe, in Paris in the 1920s. And she becomes emblematic of that, even down to women in America copying her short bobbed haircut, which Hemingway talks about. As the novel progresses, Brett seduces a 19-year-old matador that they meet at the festival down in Pamplona of San Fermin, um, and it's Jake's reaction to saving Brett uh, that forms the really devastating ending of, of the story. The first book, chap, the book's divided into three. The first part, you get used to the Cafe Society of American Expats in Paris. Uh, Brett tells Jake that she loves him, but they're clear. Uh, given their situation, that they can have no sort of stable relationship, even though she loves him. Brett has been, in a way, emasculated as well, which is interesting, that she and Jake kind of share a disease. Her The only person she's loved before Jake was her fiancé, you know, who was killed in the trenches of World War I, and her response to this psychologically has been promiscuity, to the point of almost being nymphomania, that she'll sleep with literally anybody um, to try to feel something after having lost her fiancé in the trenches. So Jake has been emasculated and Brett has become hypersexualized, both because of death in the trenches in World War I. And the irony, of course, is, is, is the basis to the novel that, that, that Brett wants sex without love, while Jake can only offer her love without sex, as one of Hemingway's critics really cleverly put it. Again, she wants sex without love, and he can only offer love without sex, so there's no way 
this can work as one of Hemingway's uh, biographers put it, I think, very cleverly. And so she says that she loves him and they're going to go off together, but she can never be with him, of course. And so and so this becomes obviously a major problem that they love each other, but the love will be um, unrequited at best. And he'll have to sit by and watch her break all the crockery. Um, and, and so this is going to be a big, big problem going forward. The second part of the story after this kind of wrenching end of the first part is really a high point of the story. Um, and it's it's really odd because it sounds incredibly boring. Um, they go fishing, the bo- the men who've accompanied Jake, uh, Brett's current fiance, her ex her ex lover, and others go fishing before everybody gathers, the gang gathers in Pamplona in the Pyrenees. But what Hemingway is really doing is hearkening back to a very American tradition. Jack London is part of this tradition, and even the transcendental writers like Emerson and Thoreau are part of this tradition, that you go back to nature as a purifier. The Jake has been in Paris too long, he's been surrounded by these posers too long, so he goes out into Spain and the Pyrenees. He knows Spain well, um, speaks the language, is well regarded by the Spanish men that he's met, and he goes fishing, and that this rejuvenates him, this American idea that nature um, is emotionally vital, that God can be seen through nature, that spiritual rejuvenation takes place through nature, through men being in nature, getting rid of of civilization's cobwebs and going out. So even writing this very European novel, Hemingway can't help but be the Midwesterner, and I'm a Midwesterner and know this, that he is. As Hemingway famously said about the Midwest, all Midwesterners um, talk about it in glowing terms and can't wait to leave. Um, You know, I certainly have this love-hate relationship, more love as I get older. Um, but Hemingway's part of this, and he looks at this very European novel from very American eyes, and philosophically this is seen through this beautiful writing about him going fishing with his male friends and and this renewing him. Unfortunately, this is a halcyon eye of the hurricane as the men then go back to Pamplona, where basically when Lady Bread comes serving as Circe, the Greek temptress, they eat, drink, and bicker about Brett, Uh, fighting each other to the point that finally Brett's had enough and goes off with the 19-year-old matador. And so this effort at reaching some sort of community, finding something in community fails, because again, they're all prisoners of World War I. And in fact, Brett's fiancé, Mike, has one of the most famous lines in Hemingway, which I've used in our political risk discussions. Uh, When asked how people or nations go broke, Mike says, well, I went broke slowly, then all at once. And this happens to nations, too. Things seem fine until they don't. Mike is also a prisoner of World War I. He, he's very fond of Jake, adores Brett, has lost his fortune, and all he can do is find crass consumerism, spending money to take the place of finding meaning, the meaning he lost at the Somme um, in World War I. And so he's another victim, um, as they all are, of World War I. Again, beautifully controlled writing without it ever even being mentioned. You realize as the reader that these are all tragic cases of World War I casualties long after 1918 has been and gone. Um, and so after the fiesta, we get to the third part of the book where Brett sends Jake a panic telegram saying that she needs help. She's in Madrid. And could he come there and bail her out that she's been with the bullfighter, the 19-year-old Romero, who's sensibly enough decided to leave her. She said that she let him go and dropped him because he was falling in love with her. And so 
Jake has to pay Brad's bills and get her back to Paris. Um, and in the end, he gets it's one of the greatest endings of a novel ever. She gets in the cab with Jake, nuzzles up next to him, and says, You know, Jake, I love you and thank you for saving me. And if only things, you know, if only you hadn't been injured in the war, everything would have been perfect between us. And Jake bitterly looks at her and in, in a moment of devastating truth. And again, Hemingway said, All writing is about simply telling the truth and I think as best you can and I think that's true certainly when I write or when I speak that's what guides me that Hemingway push um, that admonition to tell the truth to say something fine and true and real I think of that before I speak to you guys I think of that before I give speeches I think of that before I write can you write something fine and true and real and the end of Fiesta is the ultimate moment of that when after Brett goes through the fairy tale that if only you weren't maimed, Jake, we could have had a wonderful life. And Jake looks at her calmly and bitterly says, that paints a pretty picture, doesn't it? Meaning that their problems are far deeper than his physical maiming, that they are psychologically, both of them, destroyed by World War I, and that that is the basis of the novel. It's one of the most jarring, magnificent, honest, tragic endings uh, to any writing, set in just a couple words, this pretty picture they're painting belies the fact that they're both emotionally destroyed by the war, and that that's exactly what this is about. Of course, Hemingway at the time is writing about the lost generation, the 200,000 English-speaking expats. Yes, 200,000 people went English-speaking, ended up in Paris after World War One because it's an amazing city, but also because of the favorable exchange rate. And so Hemingway wrote about this very specific time in a way that he made entirely his own. Uh, a way to look at this is that Jake is still searching for integrity. And, and I take this and I, I feel this and why this novel is so personal to me. Daryl, my friend, knows that I've talked to him about this. Uh, that Jake is searching for integrity uh, in an immoral, wicked world, trying to find things that matter, maimed as he is by his own experiences, still trying to do that. And, and that that's exactly, exactly what you try to do in life. Your goal is to try to find something of meaning in an immoral world, maimed as we all are. It perfectly encapsulates the period between World War I and the Great Depression, the 1920s, the Jazz Age. As Fitzgerald put it, this novel, even more than his work, captures that period and this group of people. So there's a universal quality to the writing. Certainly, it remains important, Fiesta, as a novel because it captures being young, being lost at, at the time. The prose is universal, that Hemingway, through this lean, muscular, ING-driven prose, uh, creates almost a new way of writing in English, and that, in, in many ways, is his greatest accomplishment. There are some things that are very specific and not very pleasant. In modern terms, being worshipping bullfighting seems a very odd thing to do. Uh, there's rank anti-Semitism in the book, uh, which now seems entirely out of place. That's there as well. And there is a specificity then that Hemingway captures the 20s better than anybody else. That, that there is, this is about a specific group of people dealing with a specific problem at a specific time. But what makes this rise above that is the sparkling universality of Hemingway's prose, which is unmatchable. People have made mocked it. People have tried to copy it, but nobody has been able to emulate what Hemingway was to do with the English language. This new, muscular, American athletic prose 
fit for a new muscular American 20th century. Fiesta is unmatchable and unmissable, and I hope you enjoy it. A book about the terrors of war that is so controlled, so refined, that the war itself is barely mentioned. Hope you enjoy that. It was great to do this, Why Ernest Hemingway Matters, Fiesta, his first great novel. Um, I'm glad to start this series off with a bang. We'll try to do another one while I'm in New York. If not, we will get back to normal when I'm back. But I'm really, really glad that we get the culture moving because these are the things that really matter and that we're trying to defend through our foreign policy. So we'll go through Hemingway, and when we finish that, I'm open for suggestion. Terry, I'm thinking of doing a series on Laurel Canyon and some of the great songwriters of that period, um, but we will do a series on Hemingway first in the culture before we move on. Hope you guys have a great weekend, and hope Hemingway means half as much to you as he does to me. Thank you. <laughs>